If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Mark, if you haven't already. If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 853, 853. In 1859, a French man named Charles Blondin crossed the Niagara River just down from the Niagara Falls. He did so on a tightrope of more than three inches wide, spanning 1,000 feet and 160 feet above the water. Now, the story goes that with thousands gathered to watch, this man offered to carry a volunteer on his back across the river. No one took him up on that offer. At 5.15, he began to cross the river, and at one point he stopped and laid down for a rest. At another point, he stood on one leg for a while. The crossing took him a little over 17 minutes. After a pause, he went back across the rope much faster this time. Later on, days, months, weeks, I'm not sure, later, uh, later crossings, uh, Charles invited or introduced variations of this crossing where he carried his, his own manager across on his back. He did this blindfolded. He did it on stilts. He did it in a, a gorilla costume. He did it while pushing a wheelbarrow. Uh, other than the manager, no other volunteers are have apparently been recorded as taking him up on the offer to go with him across the wire. But imagine if you were there. There were thousands apparently gathered to watch this man. And he were to ask you if you would join him on the tightrope. Now, I could tell you right now with no uncertainty that I would not do that. Uh, I I wouldn't join anybody on a ladder. I'm not going to join them on a tightrope. Uh, not, not, not going to happen for me, but, but if you were to, be, to have been asked that question, would you, would you trust him? Well, maybe, maybe the first time you didn't see him, right? Now, now having seen him cross a few times, maybe some people, their trust would have been improved. But what would cause you to trust him? What would, you call, what would cause you to distrust him? Well, this story is a bit of an illustration, though, isn't it, of faith, of what it means to believe. It's one thing to say that we believe something. We might say, I believe that that man could cross the wire. We might even say, I believe that he could carry someone across on that wire. It's something very different to say, I believe that he could carry me across on that wire, right? There is a difference in those things. Well, this morning, we are faced with the same ultimate question of what will we believe? And will we believe what Jesus has done? Well, last week in our passage, Mark recounted the death of Jesus. And now this week in chapter 16, Mark recounts the resurrection of Jesus. Romans chapter 4 verse 25 tells us that that salvation requires both the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. That if Jesus just died... He doesn't have victory over the grave. His resurrection was absolutely necessary. The resurrection of Jesus is as much a part of the gospel message as is his death. There is no Christianity without resurrection. Now you, or maybe someone you know, may think the resurrection is a bridge too far. It's it's too hard to believe, right? 
someone who is dead came back to life. That, that, that may seem to you uh, unbelievable. By definition, it would be a miracle, right? It is outside the, the boundary of what is natural. So by that, it is supernatural. It is a miracle. Resurrection um, has never been commonplace, right? Even in the time of Jesus, even though we read the Bible of resurrections, it's not like they were happening all the time. We read about some of them because they're documented, right, as, as they, they ought to be. It's not as though resurrection was normal or normalized back then either. So resurrection was not necessarily easier for some at that time to believe than it would be for us here today. Some may see resurrection as unlikely, as unrealistic, as untenable, and unbelievable. And if you find yourself in that category... If you find yourself being able to relate with, with, with that kind of tension, well, I got news for you. You're not alone. You're absolutely not alone. Because even though Jesus told his disciples that he would in fact rise, they did not believe him. Even after the testimony of someone who had seen him in, alive, they did not believe. Mark, along with the other gospel writers, record the resurrection of Jesus here. We'll see it in the first eight verses in the subsequent interactions of that resurrection morning. As we consider these verses, we will see the doubts and unbelief of those closest to Jesus. And the first people we see with doubts are those who come to the tomb. Look at verse one. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome brought, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Now, before we get to this actual account of the resurrection, we should notice something that we touched on last week, but Mark's emphasis on women here. We live in a time when there, is, there seems to be a lot of confusion uh, and conflicting ideas about women. Uh, from what is a woman, to the role of women in society, to the role of women in, in the church or in the home, to the value and even necessity of women, to the quote-unquote rights of women, and the protection of all women. Now, I don't suppose that we will clear up these things this morning, but what we can tell you is this, is that Jesus knew what a woman was, and he had a high view of women. Many women followed Jesus on his time on the earth. We saw that last week. That's no small matter. They played an important role in his ministry and in the ministry of the early church. That is instructive. That's instructional for us. That that's how Jesus viewed women and that's how we ought to view women as well. Women are and always have been created equal by God. That's nothing new. That's as old as creation, the equality of creation. Women equally bear God's image. They were equally created to glorify God. And though equal in every way as, as, as men, they have a different role. And that's not, that there's nothing wrong with saying that. 
that's not dismissive or disparaging at all to say that there are different roles between men and women. Different does not mean unequal. Don't know where we get this idea. Difference is necessary. Difference is necessary in order to fulfill the, God's vision for humanity. The idea of, of, of women or a woman is not a social construct. It's not something that anyone chooses. It is the design of God given to some. It's a design that God himself made. Women matter, and Mark is demonstrating their importance in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And here at the cross, we see three women listed by name. Two of them we saw listed at the burial. The other three were listed at the crucifixion. The same three listed here in verse one. And they come, verse one tells us, when the Sabbath had passed. The Sabbath would have been Saturday. Jesus was crucified on Friday. They were there at the crucifixion. He was buried on Friday. Saturday was the Sabbath, so the Jews would have observed uh, rest on that day. Now it's Sunday. Then they come. Likely they would have come before uh, the sun even rose. They would have uh, started out on their, uh, their journey to, to the tomb. Um, and their actions of a, uh, were, were to anoint the body of Jesus, Mark tells us. Now, Jesus is already dead. This is the, the, on the third day of his death. Uh, this anointing would likely do nothing for his decaying body. Right? They weren't doing anything that was actually going to help matters. So what were they doing? They were, they were showing respect for Jesus. Right? This was something that they could do. Sometimes we want to do something, right? Just let me do something. And this was a way that they could honor the body of Jesus and show respect for him. Their actions were a testimony of their faith. Right? They had been following this Jesus. They, they watched him die. They, they saw him be buried. They, they believed on him. And so here they come to show honor to him. Their works were evidence of their faith, not additions to their faith. Like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Let me, last week, I, I called Joseph of Arimathea a non-Jewish uh, member of the Sanhedrin. That was an incorrect statement. He was a Jewish member of the Sanhedrin. The non-Jewish designation was that they called it a council, not the Sanhedrin in Mark 15. So my, my apologies there. But like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, these women put feet to their faith. They didn't just talk about following Jesus. They actually did something. Right? Nicodemus, taking him, Nicodemus and Joseph taking him off the cross. Here are these women following Jesus and now anointing his body. But having said that, and this is an act of, 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 of worship or honor or faith, we also see that in their words, they demonstrated a doubt in the resurrection itself. Right? These women came on the third day, and they had every expectation in the world that the body of Jesus would be in the tomb. That's what they came to do. They did not come to see the risen Lord. They did not come to see an empty tomb. They came to anoint the, the dead body of Jesus. Regardless of what Jesus had said or what they had heard, these women who saw the crucifixion, they saw him being buried, did not believe that Jesus would be risen from the dead when they arrived. They had a different concern. They had a concern about how they would actually get in 
to, to the two. Look at verse three. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us for the, uh, from the entrance of the tomb? You remember that a large stone was rolled across the front of the tomb, a, a heavy stone, a stone that would not be easily removed, especially by three, three women at this point. And so here they come, their focus is, is, is on what they came to do to anoint that they weren't thinking about resurrection here. And though that seems like a legitimate concern of how they're going to get in, that was quickly replaced by what they saw in verse four and five. Look at verse four. And looking up, they saw the stone had back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And so they came to, to the tomb. Now, likely they, they would have come. This, this says they looked up. Potentially, they had their heads bowed in, in a state of reverence as they came to the tomb. And so once there, they look up and they see what? They see that the stone is rolled back. Their, their biggest concern was how they're getting in. It, once they're there, that's not the concern anymore. They have another concern. There's an empty tomb, right? Where is the body? And not only that, there's someone else there. Here, Mark calls this, this man a, a young man. Matthew calls him an angel of the Lord. Matthew goes on, whose appearance was like lightning in his clothes white as snow. If for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now, Mark doesn't talk at all about the, the guards and neither do the women. Maybe they didn't even know that there were going to be guards. Regardless, here, the angel of the Lord comes and everyone is shaken by such a thing. These women are said to have been alarmed. They were amazed. They were astonished. They were astounded by what they witnessed. Danny Aiken writes, in Mark's gospel, fear is always man's response to the breaking in of the power of God. You remember when they're on the boat in the, in the, on the Sea of Galilee and the storm whips up and Jesus comes aboard, is awakened and he goes and he silences the, the, the wind and the wave, peace be still. What happens then? They were afraid. They saw the power of God breaking into their world and they were afraid. Well, here now we see it again. And can you even imagine? Can you even imagine going to a, to a graveyard, going to a tomb? You expect to not see anything alive. You're thinking everything will be dead and what is there is not a dead body, but a heavenly being. And the heavenly being isn't just present, he speaks. Look at verse six. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, who was crucified. He is, has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Now, the angel began with an interaction um, here with the, the interaction with, with these um, with these two ladies led to what all interactions with heavenly beings lead to in the Bible. Fear, right? That, that, that is the response. We see it earlier in the Gospels. We see it in, in the book of Matthew. When the angel talks to Joseph, what, is, what does he say to Joseph? Do not fear. When, when the angel comes to Zechariah, what does he say to Zechariah? Do not fear. When the angel comes to Mary, what, is, what does he say? Do not fear. When the angel announces the birth of Jesus to the shepherds, what does he say? Do not fear. Right, over and over again, this is the, the, the message, and, and why should they not be afraid? Humanly speaking, we say, of course they should be afraid, but why should they not be afraid? Well, like the angels, there is good news. 
This is, this, is a, this is a problem. There's something good to be known. And here the angel confirms the work of Jesus. Look at it again. You see Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where he laid. So we see crucifixion, we see burial, and we see resurrection. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul recounts as the, the nutshell of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The angel is heralding the gospel, that Jesus was crucified, he was buried, and he rose again. Jesus told them what he would do. Throughout the Gospels, he told them what, they would, that what would happen, and it was true. It happened, and the angel is confirming that it, in fact, did happen. Jesus kept his word. You know, one of the reasons for rejecting Jesus is that if he is or was who he said he was, if he did what he said he did, if he is alive and not dead, then that means something about Jesus. That means that he's not a mere man. It means that he's not just a good teacher or, or a prophet. It means that he's deity. It means that he's God. And if he's God, and we all know that we're not God, then we're accountable to that God. So one of the reasons to reject Jesus is if I reject Jesus, then I'm not accountable to him, or so the thinking might go. And yet, whether you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, whether you believe he is deity, whether you believe that he died and rose again, is irrelevant to whether or not he is an authority over you. We've said this before, but we do not make Jesus king. Jesus is king. And one day we will all be responsible for how we respond to that truth. He is the resurrected King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no ifs about it. Jesus did, in fact, die. He was buried and he rose again. What will we do with that? What will you do with that? Will you surrender to him as the king that he is? Will you believe? That's the question. Well, the angel concluded his instructions for the women in verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. Just as he told you, he did. In chapter 14, verse 25, Jesus told the disciples about this post-resurrection meetup in Galilee. But here the angel is reminding them. It's sending the, the women to go and tell the disciples and to tell Peter. In this way, we see the women are the first messengers of the resurrection. Again, Again, the, the importance, the priority, and the value of women in ministry. These were the first people to herald the message. They were the first people to, later we'll see, saw Jesus uh, alive. We make much of the shepherds who were the first to hear the announcement of the, the birth of Jesus, and rightly so. And we conclude from that that God's no respecter of persons. God will use whoever he will, the, the foolish, the weak, the whoever, well, here we see that God uses women and men alike. Now, we could roll past these verses uh, seeing that, but also just as a mere uh, reminder, the angel says, go, go and tell them. Don't help them not to forget that they're supposed to go to Galilee. But we also see here evidence of God's grace and his mercy to Jesus' disciples. 
Look at verse 7 again. But go and tell his disciples and Peter. The disciples had failed Jesus miserably, didn't they? They fled from him in the garden. And Peter, most prominently, denied Jesus multiple times. But God was not done with them yet. Right? God was not done with them yet. John Piper said this, don't ever think that the sin of your past means there is no hope for your future. The sin of your past does not mean there is no hope for your future. God is not done with you either. Like he was not done with Peter or the disciples, he is not done with you. You, you are more than the past sins that you have done. In fact, your identity is not in your past sins. And we could add, your identity is not in your future obedience. Christian, your identity is in the perfect righteousness and unfailing faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That is what we stand on. That is what what makes us acceptable to God. That is why we don't fall apart when we sin. That's why we don't have to fear being left by God or forsaken by God. Why? Because of the perfect righteousness and unfailing faithfulness of Christ. And so this frees us. If our identity is in something, in someone that never changes, the way that God sees me is already determined. You can't make that better or worse. I heard one pastor say this, that God loves you and you can do nothing about it. That means that you, you, you can't get him to unlove you. That's how resolute this is. Why? Because of Jesus. Because Jesus did what you and I couldn't do. It frees us from living under the regret of yesterday or the anxiety of tomorrow. Some of us look back and we see our past and we we live with such regret over our failures. Listen, your identity is not in your past. Some of us look forward and say, man, I'm not sure I'm going to make it. What if I'm not faithful? What if I don't don't obey enough? What if I don't do, do right enough for God? Both of those things, you're looking at your own works. Our identity is not in ourselves, in what we've done or haven't done. It's only in Jesus. This liberates us to repent of our sins, to receive God's forgiveness, and by grace forsake sin and walk in faithfulness. Mark recorded the the scene, uh, continues to record the scene as the women leave the tomb in verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That sounds about right, doesn't it? Trembling and astonishment had seized them or or took hold of them. Again, this is in the imperfect tense, so it's not like a a one-off. They were affected by this. And it wasn't the the angelic being in the tomb. It was the, the, the lack of presence of the body. They were affected. Rightly so, they were affected by this announcement that Jesus was alive. Could it be true? Could it be true that Jesus was alive? And would anyone believe that? Can you imagine what they're thinking? They're supposed to go tell this message. Would anyone even believe it? The implications of the resurrection are many and are of eternal significance. 
Again, Danny Aiken offers three optional beliefs about the resurrection. You either think that it's, a, it's false, you think that it's a hoax, you think that it's fiction, you think that it's made up, it's, it's, it's a myth, or it's fact, and it's historical. In order to rule out the resurrection as fact, though, you have to ask several questions. And one of those we talked about at Easter, where's the body? Can someone just answer that question? For everyone who doubts the resurrection, where's the body? If the body could be produced, if the, God, the body could have been found, if we could have seen the bones, then all of this is a sham. The apostles are liars. The church is, is a mirage. But they couldn't. You have to explain how the church began. How did it endure? How did it last through all the persecution? It martyrdom. And speaking of martyrdom, why would the apostles give their lives for a hoax? Why would they give their lives for a mythology? The reality is those things only make sense. The lack of the body, the presence of the church, and the, the martyrdom of the, of, the, of the apostles only make sense if it's fact. They only make sense if Christ actually did die. And the scriptures affirm for us that he in fact did die. Now Mark chapter 16 contains several verses after verse 8. In fact, there are some 11 or 12 verses that follow. Verses 9 through 20 go on to tell the appearing of Jesus and the unbelief of the disciples and the commissioning of the disciples and the ascension of Jesus back to heaven. But before we get to any of that, we need to address a, a peculiar and difficult issue in the book of Mark. Verses 9 through 20 are referred to as the longer ending of Mark. Some manuscripts that were used to translate Mark's gospel end the account of Mark after verse 8 and do not contain verses 9 through 20. This would end the gospel very abruptly. And there are some different views on, on if that's true or, or why that might be true. Some have wondered if a, a page of Mark's writing may have been lost over time. Others see this ending as potentially intentional, as it invites the reader to be part of the subsequent going to tell the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. In my Bible, in the ESV, there are brackets around these verses indicating that there's some questions about their presence in some of the manuscripts. The ESV Study Bible says this, some manuscripts contain verses 9 through 20, and they indicate that the older manuscripts lack the section. On the other hand, some early and many later manuscripts contain these verses, and many church fathers evidently knew of these verses. But more than just their, their absence in some of the the manuscripts, we also find that, again, not to our, we can't see this, but in the original language, there are several differences between how Mark wrote up to this point and what is contained in these verses in the original language. There's differences that, that are uncommon in the book of Mark. It is believed then by some theologians that this ending was added in the second century to provide a concluding summation uh, of the other, by the other gospel writers. So it's possible that a scribe kind of wrote a summary statement in order to kind of conclude the gospel. So what are we to do with that? Well, there are other situations in the Bible where there are questions about when such things were put into uh, these manuscripts. But as with those situations, we can know this, that in, in none of those cases are any doctrinal issues affected by their presence or by their absence. 
whether we include this or we do not include it, it does not change anything about the doctrine that the Bible promotes. Additionally, the content that's found in verses 9 through 12, almost all of it, not all of it, but almost all of it can be found in the other three Gospels. And so, uh, we can read these verses, we can learn from these verses with a measure of confidence that we're not learning anything conflicting or anything new that the other Gospels don't already affirm. So even though these verses may not have been in Mark's Gospel originally, and though they do present some different expressions, we can see in verses 9 through 20 a theme that Mark uses, one of belief and unbelief. This idea of, of what you will believe or what you will not believe. And in verses 9 through 11, we see a further example of this doubting of the resurrection. Look at verse 9. Now when they rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. And again, this is confirmed in, in the other Gospels that he appeared to Mary Magdalene. From whom he had cast out several demons, seven demons. That's back in the book of Luke chapter 8. She went and told them, those who had been with him, uh, so she did what she was told to do, as they mourned and wept, but when they heard her, they heard that he was alive, excuse me, it had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Again, this matches up well with John's gospel in chapter 20, Matthew 28, and Luke 24. After having seen Jesus for herself, she went and she told the disciples. Her belief led her to obedience. That is the response of believing. Believing leads to obedience. If we say we believe something, the evidence of our belief is obedience. But would they believe? They did not believe. That's, that's what we see, more unbelief, even from an eyewitness. Now, sometime later, Jesus appeared to two unnamed disciples. Luke calls this on the road to, to Emmaus. But you, you can see here in verses 12 and 13, after these things, he appeared to another uh, in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, and they did not believe them. Now we could go to Luke chapter 24 and see that account of, of Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus and talking to them about the crucifixion and explaining to them all the things concerning himself from the Old Testament. But even as they did that, they did not notice that it was Jesus. They didn't get it. They didn't believe Finally, even when Jesus comes to the room, in verse 14, afterward, he appeared to the 11 themselves. It actually wasn't 11. It would have been 10 because Thomas wasn't there at this time. As they were reclining at table, he rebuked them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Luke's gospel here confirms the, the disciples' belief as well. Matthew even says it this way, Matthew chapter 20, 28, verse 7, says that when they saw him, that's talking about the disciples, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. So here we have Jesus in the flesh, right? This isn't Mary saying, I saw him. This is Jesus in the flesh, and there's still doubts that are present with these disciples. Whether it was the women on Sunday morning, or those who heard Mary's testimony, or the two on the road to Emmaus, or these other disciples in the room, the question is the same. Christ is risen, will you believe it? It's the same question for me and you. It's the same question for the beginning of Mark's narrative. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says this, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It's the same call. 
believe. Believe what Jesus will do, what Jesus has done. And so the question comes to us this morning, will we believe it? Will you repent and believe? Will you see that this Jesus was in fact crucified? He did in fact, he was in fact buried and he did in fact rise from the dead. Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ is risen. He is alive and because he's alive, it changes everything. This is not a mere doctrinal point. This is life-changing news. It's an announcement that changes everything for us. Why? Because, because Christ is risen, our sins can be forgiven. And those whose sins are forgiven are no longer in their sins. We no longer carry the, the, the penalty and power of sin over us. There is now no condemnation, Paul says, for those who are in Christ Jesus because of Jesus. His victory over death, his resurrection, is our victory over death. Death no longer has a sting, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because he rose, we too will one day rise. The resurrection of Jesus gives us hope that death is not the end, that death will not have the final word for the Christian, that the best is yet to come, that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us, and will one day come to receive us to himself, that where he is, there we will be also. One day we too will come to paradise, the paradise that was once lost, the paradise in the Garden of Eden will be restored, a place in which God will dwell with man, in the new heaven, in the new earth, in a place which righteousness will dwell. All of this because of the resurrection. Without it, we would not have any of this. Paul says, without it, Christians would be the most miserable people, most pitiable people. We'd still be in our sins. Our faith would be futile. Our preaching would be in vain. But Christ has risen. He has risen, and it changes everything. That's not just theological language. We got to get out of just the theological ideas this morning. How does this affect your everyday? Not just how does this affect you when you die. The resurrection affects you now. It affects you how you relate with one another. It, reflects how, it affects how you relate with God even now, how you speak to him. How can you speak to him? Because of Jesus. The very fact that you can talk to, to God, the very fact that you're forgiven, the very fact that you can forgive is because of the work of Jesus. Because the way that you love is because you've been loved through Jesus. The way that you serve is because you've been served through Jesus. All of it is affected by the resurrection. If the resurrection is not true, why would we care about anything? Why would you care about anything? Why would you care about morality? Why would you care about being nice? Why would you care about being honest? If the resurrection isn't true, then we all die and it's, it's done at death. The only reason that stuff matters is because it's not over at death. There is more. We're living not just for now. We're living for eternity. The resurrection affects not just your earth, er, eternal life. It affects your earthly life. We must learn to live in response to the resurrection. How might your life this week be different because Jesus is alive? More hope? 
more joy, more urgency for the things of God, more motivation, more gratitude, maybe less anxiety, less fear, less worry, less pessimism, less procrastination. I don't know what it is for you, but we must learn to live in response to the, res- the resurrection. It is not a mere doctrinal point. It is the, the effect, the change, the change that changes everything. And may God help us to do it. As we close, I would encourage you and challenge you to consider one way this week that the resurrection of, of Jesus will affect the way you live. May God help us to live that way. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that the good news of the resurrection would affect the way we live. That it wouldn't be just something that we could all just affirm with an amen. Yes, we ought to. But that our faith would turn to action. That our faith would turn to obedience. That believing these things would, af- would affect the way we live. So God, I don't know what it is for each one today, but I pray that in, in some way this week, those of us here this morning would live differently. Maybe our worship is, is enthused. Maybe we're, we're, we're more motivated to live for you this week because of all that Christ has done. Maybe we're more grateful for the, the, the gifts that you have given to us because without which we would be lost. Maybe we live with more confidence today, not afraid of so many things because if Jesus is alive, that means God's in control. God, whatever it is, help us this week. For those who might be with us who have yet to believe, maybe there's fear about believing. Maybe there's questions that they have about Jesus in his work, God, I pray that they might come to you. Maybe even find someone to ask their questions. But Father, I pray that they wouldn't wait. They would see Jesus and his work for them, and they would repent of their sins and believe, even this day. Thank you, God, for your son. Thank you that while we were still in our sins, you sent your son to die for us, to be buried, and to rise again, that one day we too would rise. And in his name we pray. Amen. Oh God, you